Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Renee Rao. I'll be hosting today's show. Today we present part two of our interview with Arash Komeli. Dr. Komeli is a cell biologist and associate professor of plant and microbial biology at UC Berkeley. Previously on Spectrum, he discussed his work with magnetotactic bacteria. Here is Dr. Komeli explaining why these bacteria are so interesting. We work with a specific type of bacteria. They're called magnetotactic bacteria, and these are organisms that are quite widespread. You can find them in most aquatic environments. By almost any sort of classification, you can't really group them together. If you take their shape or if you look at even the genes they have, you can't really group them into one specific group, as opposed to many other bacteria that you can do that. What unites them together as a group is that they're able to orient in magnetic fields and swim along magnetic fields. Today, in part two of his interview, Dr. Comelli explains how these discoveries might be applied and discusses the scientific outreach he does in our community. Here is Brad Swift interviewing Arash Comelli. So how is it that you're trying to leverage what you're learning about the magnetosome? Are you trying to apply it in any way, or are you still really in the pure research mode? I think we're starting to move out, or at least branch out, to try to do some applications as well. This has been really one of the areas of research that's been the most active, or at least the most thought about, for magnetotactic bacteria for the last 40 years or so that people have been working on it. You have two features of the magnetosomes that immediately can be thought of as being very useful for applications. One is that they're making something that's nanometer-sized, very small, is magnetic. And it has very, very regular dimensions, quite free of impurities. So you can make magnetic particles, you know, in the lab. And people have gotten very good at it, actually. But it's often very hard to control some of their features. Maybe contaminants can kind of bind the magnetic particles pretty easily. And then on top of that, you have to sort of use certain types of chemical conditions that are not so favorable, maybe the pH has to be a little bit high or chemicals that you don't want to use. And that's one of the reasons why the bacteria are so great, right? They, as I said, they make an organelle, in this case the magnetosome, so that within this tiny 50 nanometer sphere, they can just make what is otherwise a toxic condition inside of that and make this magnetic particle. But the cells are growing in relatively harmless growth media at 30 degrees centigrade. So you can make magnetic nanoparticles under what are not toxic conditions because the bacteria are taking care of that inside of the cell. So that's one of the reasons people have been really fascinated by them. So how can we take these sort of perfect crystals out of these bacteria and apply them to something else? The other aspect of it that's really important to recognize is that it's not just that the bacteria are randomly making magnetic 
particles. They actually have a whole set of genes that they use to build a magnetism and build a magnetic particle. So the ability to make a magnetic crystal is encoded in genes. So you can not only extract the magnets out of these bacteria to use them for applications, maybe you can extract the genes and put them into another organism and now give that other organism the capability to make magnetic nanoparticles. Their magnetic properties makes them really useful for many different kinds of applications. One of them, they can be potentially contrast agents for magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. When you get an MRI, there's a lot of structures that are easily seen, but a lot of things are sort of invisible to the MRI. And if you had a little magnetic particle in that region, you would be able to see it better. One idea is, can we put the genes, as we learn more about them, can we sort of gather up a minimum set of genes that are sort of sufficient to make a magnetism and a magnetic particle, and then just put those into some other cell types, and then see if that's enough to make a magnetic particle in that cell, and then can we track it by MRI or something else. And so that that's actually the focus of a grant that we recently got with a few other groups on campus as a large collaborative grant. How will you start to prove that concept? I think we're taking many parallel approaches for it, you know, both to show the utility or the different ways that you would have to image them. One group is working on essentially technologies for imaging magnetic nanoparticles in animals. And then we're sort of at the very other end of the spectrum in the collaboration. We're trying to say, we think we have a set of genes that are sufficient for this process. Let's start taking baby steps and move them to other types of cells, whether they're bacteria or other cells, and see if we can produce magnetic particles in those cells. Our other collaborators, they're focusing more on, well, if we know these genes, can we start transferring them to mammalian cells? And then in animal studies, we could track cells using magnetic resonance imaging. Each group is focusing on a different aspect of the project. Some of the other applications are really fascinating, too. There's one where particles hold their magnetic properties very stably. And if you give a very strong magnetic field, then you can kind of flip the dipole moment of the crystal. So you can do this back and forth, keep switching it. And if the pulse is switching faster than the dipole moment can flip on the magnetic particle, the difference in energy is essentially released as heat. So you can, in that way, heat the particle. There's a lot of anti-cancer treatments to try to essentially have the particles adhere to a tumor and then heat the particles using this method. Just have the heat of the particles kill the cells locally. There's been quite a few papers on it, and some of these types of studies are in clinical trials to see how effective they could be for different kinds of tumors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bacteria seems to get used that way more and more to go into a tumor and linger just on the tumor and continue to... Just be very local in terms of... Very, very specific. Yeah, Yeah, and that's, you know, local drug delivery or local attacking of tumor cells would be something that's very... So bacteria have this great access that other organisms don't have. If you can localize them and direct them. And that's sort of... There's some other work which... I think is also really interesting is thinking about the magnetotactic bacteria as a vehicle for delivering drugs. 
you know, one of the things you can imagine is that you could guide them with a magnetic field. So you can have them guided to some areas in the body by an external magnetic field. And there's definitely some people who are working on that. Can they move the bacteria through vasculature to a certain area because they can swim along magnetic field? So if you wanted to localize it somewhere, you would have to... Um, Instigate the field inst- there. Yeah, exactly. To direct it. Right. The stuff I was telling you about with the heat treatment, I think all of that is trying to, right now at least, because there's not much known about how to target the bacteria, they work with kinds of tumors that are accessible so that you could inject the particles into the tumor. Yeah, directly. Right? A direct link yeah, to the exactly. tumor as opposed to try to do a systemic thing. Yeah, exactly. But you can imagine that maybe one benefit of the magnetisms is that they are surrounded by a biological membrane and you can have proteins on them. And people have done this, but you can display specific proteins on the surface of magnetisms. So then you could customize your magnetosome to have affinity for certain types of proteins or certain types of cells. Some proof of concept of that has been done for sure. Our guest on Spectrum today is Arash Komeli, a cell biologist and associate professor at UC Berkeley. In the next segment, Dr. Komeli speaks more about some of his collaborative projects. This is KALX Berkeley. The work you're doing with uh, sequencing, is a lot of it trying to catalog everything, keep track of what's what, sort of explain the sequencing side of what you're doing? The sequencing side, we are fortunate that the organism that we work with in pure culture, our lab rat essentially, has been already sequenced by someone else. When we sequence, it's more to make sure if we're going to put some gene fusion into the bacteria or that what we have is correct. Our sequencing is relatively limited. We are trying to branch out more and say nowadays technologies for sequencing a whole genome are much more accessible, affordable. Certain types of genetics that we do where we try to delete genes or randomly mutate them, then we can just sort of identify what's changed by going back and just sequencing the whole genome of the bacteria. We are doing a little bit of that. We do it on campus, very accessible and affordable. But it's really something that was unthinkable even five, six years ago, that you could do this on a large scale, do it affordably, and it could be a pretty routine tool in research. So, I mean, it's really exciting, actually. You're not going to necessarily have to be restricted to these lab rats that do represent some of the general features of the process you're interested in, but not the diversity of it necessarily. And so you can say, instead of studying just one organism, maybe I can study many other ones. There's still a lot that I can do with my model system in the lab that I can't do with some of these other unconventional organisms, but they're at least visible to me. Their genes are visible to me, and I don't have to isolate them away from everybody else to get an understanding of what their genetic makeup is and where they are. And for things like microbiome studies, it's revolutionized the whole field. They See, were they were always just looking at such a small sliver yeah. of what they could isolate. Yeah. And now you can look at everything, you know. They mm-hmm. can do lots of really interesting experiments, like what's on your fingers, what's on your, you know, how's 
your right hand different from your left hand in exactly, terms of the yeah. microbial content. Yeah. You know, so it's really interesting. Yeah, it gets very refined. Is synthetic biology involved in what you're doing in some way? Yeah, definitely. So what I was telling you about the applications, you know, essentially, I mean, synthetic biology, I guess there's different ways of defining it. For me, you have inspiration from some biological system, and now you're trying to extrapolate that and put it in a new context to do something new or something different than it normally does. So what I was telling you about this this project that we have on campus that's now supported by the Keck Foundation to put the magnetosome genes into other organisms, well, that's essentially synthetic biology. So yeah, we are really relying on that and trying to see if we're going to move these genes, how are they going to be more, how can we customize them so that they work better in the new organisms they go to, can we add on things to them or take things away, and, and doing this using synthetic biology essentially, that it would fall under the category of synthetic biology. Mm-hmm. Sort of like mixing and matching genes and in new contexts that you wouldn't have naturally. And what sort of safety protocols do you have to abide by in your research? For for our research, we're working with something that's non-pathogenic, that's quite harmless. We follow, the university has pretty strict guidelines, for, even for non-pathogenic organisms. Anytime you're working with recombinant DNA, even those things I was telling you where we are making a fluorescent protein fusion, we really have to be careful about how we get rid of things and, you know, don't just dump it down the drain. Safety-wise, we don't really use anything harmful in the lab. I think maybe you're getting more into, like, what do you do with a hybrid organism somehow? And there we have to be, you know, we're always careful about how we dispose of materials. The cultures are always killed by bleach or heating before we dispose of it. You know, often people's imagination runs wild with them, right? You know, it's, yeah. And a lot of that has to do with fiction. Yeah. Books and movies and things. And, right, but I think it's important to, yeah. to sort That's of... That's sort of what prompts yeah. me to ask. And I think that. a lot of times maybe scientists think about that too late, <laughs> you know. So so maybe... It may not be the first thing you think about. It may not about, be the first right? thing you think about, and then it may also... It may not be in your training expertise or whatever to even know what would be dangerous. So I, 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 Is that I, something that the university is helping with in the sense of certainly, a, yeah. providing those kinds of resources to you so that you right. don't have to be expert? Right. We don't. Yeah, exactly. how and, can you be? And, and also, important. you know, we have to comply with not just handling of biological organisms, but just how the lab functions. We not only have to comply with university rules, but we have federal rules for worker safety, city rules that are different. So we have five or six different sort of safety protocols that we have to abide by. And we do get inspections once a year. And I know people who work with animals, they have even more extensive things that they have to go through, whole separate set of protocols to just the sort of ethical treatment of the animals approved by independent boards and things like that. And and the funding agencies have a lot of rules, so they give us money, but they expect us to follow certain types of rules. You're listening to Spectrum on K.A. Alex Berkeley. Our guest is Arash Komeli. In the next segment, he speaks about his work on outreach to the broader public.
I noticed you've got a Twitter account. I do, yeah. And <laughs> is that sort of part of an outreach effort on your part to get yeah. the community involved or people interested in what you're doing? How do you view outreach going forward for your projects? Yeah, so the Twitter thing is, you'd ask me, is it outreach or fun? And I think it's both. It's not anonymous. You can you search my name. You can find it. We have one for the lab also, which is not very active at all. But mine, a lot of the people that I follow are other scientists. I think it is not known so well that there are many scientists on Twitter. And there is great outreach because often it's a great way to share new findings in research or things that are exciting to people or having a discussion within the community. But it's all accessible. None of it is anonymous, so you can really see that. It's also fun, obviously. For example, I, I encourage people to look out there. There's a lot of great science writers who take research findings and they, in science blogs, turn it into very accessible stories to understand the latest developments in research. For outreach, we try to do a lot of things. Members of my lab go out to... There's different events where scientists can interact with the community. I've done a few microbiology experiments with my son's classroom in you know, kindergarten, first, second grade. For me, it's been really eye-opening to do that because you see, you all, sometimes you think what you're doing is so inaccessible and out there, but when you go and just talk to people, you see that they can get really excited about it, especially kids. Kids can get really excited about microbes, which is kind of funny because it's not something they can see. And they've really only heard about bad germs. They've only heard about things that can hurt them. It's just great to go out there and talk about things that are good germs and on their bodies and everything. So we do a little experiment where we take a little agar plate, which has the growth medium for the bacteria. They put their little fingerprints on it, and they can see over the course of a few days bacteria grow on there. They wash their hands, and they can see that that changes whether or not they can grow. And I do the exact same experiment. I teach undergraduate microbiology lab here. You know, the questions that the undergrads ask are almost exactly the same questions that the third graders ask. So it's great to see that they have the insight and the excitement to learn about science. It just has to be, I think, encouraged and followed up more as they go through schooling. I think another reason for us to go and do outreach is to just sort of... I get more excited about my work when I go and talk to other people and see that it's not so out there. And the university provides a lot of chances for us to do outreach, too, I think. I mean, just recently we had Cal Day. There was lots of science on campus. Are there blogs that you follow that you'd want to mention? Some colleagues at Berkeley have blogs, but I think people are more active through Twitter than they are through blogs. The Scientific American blogs in general are, are pretty good. You mentioned the Keck Foundation that's brought together this collaboration that you're going to try to do the applied research on. Are there other collaborations that you're trying to pursue yeah, you know, our work, we rely on a lot of collaborations, mainly because the bacteria do this really amazing thing of building these magnetic particles. And we're always, just like the example I told you about with the more high-resolution electron microscopy, where we were able to see something that we hadn't seen before. There's a lot of people who are interested in imaging magnetic particles. They're developing instruments all the time that you would be able to look at these things in new ways. And... We can't build the same instruments, but it ends up being a really great interaction all the time to find these groups that are developing technologies for imaging bacteria or imaging particles and then see how what we've learned can be applied to their technologies. One great collaboration we had recently is with the Walsworth Group at Harvard, and they have these, essentially there's a way you can treat diamonds 
so that there's certain defects on the surface of the diamond, and then you can detect magnetic fields close to the surface of the diamond. You can actually essentially image these bacteria that we work with sitting on the surface of these diamonds because of their magnetic properties. It's been great for us because working with them, hopefully we're able to fine-tune some aspects of their technique to then study the magnetic particles and the magnetic chains in a different way than we have been so far and learn new things, basically. At any given point, we might have seven or eight active collaborations going on. A lot of it on our part is not that difficult. We just provide a sample of the bacteria, and then they work on it. And if, if it goes somewhere, then we go and get more involved in the collaboration. Yeah, start iterating with them. Yeah, exactly. This CAC collaboration was out of a brainstorming session. We went from there. And we have another collaboration, actually. It's also synthetic biology that was just funded by the Office of Naval Research. And that's between two or three groups that are in different universities. We had always just talked here and there to each other, and all of a sudden we realized that we could do something together. And that's how that came about. It's a huge part of science, and I think it's even more now with funding situation. And You have to really look for more creative ways of doing your science. And your sense is that the funding environment is dwindling? It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was already bad, and the sequester just sort of pushed it down even further. For example, you look at NIH, the amount of money is not increasing which means it's not keeping up with inflation. So your purchasing power is much less. And then all of a sudden, the sequester takes out a few percentages off of what was getting funded to you. So I think both the success rates for getting a grant and the amount of money that you get from that grant are lower. Even if you're lucky enough to be able to get the grant, what you could do with the money is less than before. Obviously, you know, I'm biased, but I don't think it's that great. You're essentially sacrificing the next generation of scientists. Limiting it. Limiting it big time. Was there anything that you wanted to mention? One thing I was going to say is that we've talked a lot about these bacteria, but obviously the visual is the easiest way to really appreciate what they do. And we have a, on my lab website, we have a page of videos where you can see how these bacteria migrate along magnetic fields, and you can see images of them, and you can see the structures within the cells where the magnetisms look like. So, so if people go to kumaililab.org, they can actually see videos of the bacteria. Great. Yeah. That'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> Arash Komeli, thanks very much for being on Spectrum. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Arash Komeli on Twitter at Micromagnet, or you can watch some fantastic cell videos on his website at Komeli, that is K-O-M-E-I-L-I, lab.org. And now, a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski joins me in presenting the calendar. This Monday, the California Academy of Sciences will host a talk by Dr. John Jenkins, Senior Research Scientist at the SETI Institute. Dr. Jenkins will speak about NASA's search for other habitable planets. In 2009, NASA launched the spacecraft known as Kepler into orbit in order to survey our own region of the Milky Way galaxy. Kepler has been looking for planets that are similar in size and distance from a sun to our own Earth. 
In those four years, the probe has collected data on over 190,000 stars and confirmed over 130 new planets. Dr. Jenkins will discuss the exciting new data that Kepler has provided, as well as a few of the technical and scientific challenges that went into building a vessel like Kepler. He will also give a brief overview of TESS, NASA's next mission to detect Earth's closest cousins. This event will be held Monday, July 15th at 7.30 p.m. in the planetarium of the California Academy of Sciences. Go to calacademy.org to reserve a ticket in advance. The theme for July's Adult Science Happy Hour, Science Neat, is brains, brains, brains? Everything you've always wanted to know about your brain and more. There will be talks and demos on memory, truth and tricks, neurobiology, human brains, a sheep brain dissection, and illusions. Science Neat takes place at the El Rio Bar, 3158 Mission Street in San Francisco. Admission for those 21 and over is $4. This month's Science Neat is on Tuesday, July 16th, with doors at 6 and the talks at 6.30. Every Sunday this month, the UC Berkeley Botanical Gardens will be hosting special bee explainer lectures about the importance of wild bees in the care and maintenance of all gardens and especially in the native California habitat. The Botanical Garden also features an amazing collection of plants from nearly every continent, although there is a focus on plants that thrive in our Mediterranean climate. The Asian, Californian, and South American collections are currently blooming. The garden will be open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. most days, although bee explainer tours are only offered from 11 to 1.30 on Sundays. Admission is $10 for adults and $8 for students. On Saturday, July 20th, at 11 a.m., Dr. Steve Croft will give the free Public Science at Cal lecture on snacking, gorging, and cannibalizing, the feeding habits of black holes. Learn about the latest telescopes and how they are giving more information about how black holes grow and merge. Steve leads the Science at Cal lecture series and is an assistant project astronomer working on large radio surveys and transient and variable astronomical sources. He helped commission the Allen Telescope Array for science operations and develop data analysis pipelines. He is an expert in the use of data at a wide range of wavelengths from many different telescopes. The talk is at Dwinella Hall, room 145. Visit scienceatcal.berkeley.edu for more information. And now, Spectrum brings you some of our favorite stories in science and technology news. Rick Karneski joins me again for the news. Science News summarized an article published on July 3rd in the Proceedings of the Royal Society A about how surface tension can lead to upstream contamination. Sebastian Bianconi observed this when watching the preparation of Argentinian mate tea. When hot water was poured from a pot into a container of leaves below, some of the tea leaves flowed upward, against the force of gravity and upstream of the water flow. Bianchini and his colleagues from the University of Havana and from Rutgers showed through both experiments and simulations that particles can flow upstream several meters and up centimeter-high waterfalls because the downstream flow of clean water creates a gradient with the container of tea or other particles lowering the surface tension of the water. The particles are thus pulled into the clean water, which has a greater surface tension. 
The team also demonstrated that these results could have practical applications, such as through the discharge of a standard pipette in other lab work, or in the simulated release of waste into larger scale channels. Indiana University scientists have transformed mouse embryonic stem cells into key structures of the inner ear. The discovery provides new insight into the sensory organ's developmental process and sets the stage for laboratory models of disease, drug discovery, and potential treatments for hearing loss and balance disorders. A research team led by Erie Hashino, PhD, and Rusi Holton, a professor at the School of Medicine, reported that by using a three-dimensional cell culture method, they were able to coax stem cells to develop into inner ear sensory epithelia, containing hair cells, supporting cells, and neurons that collectively detect sound, head movement, and gravity. The research was reported online Wednesday in the journal Nature. Carl Kohler, the paper's first author and a graduate student at the medical school, said, The three-dimensional culture allows the cells to self-organize into complex tissues using mechanical cues that are found during embryonic development. Additional research is needed to determine how exactly inner ear cells involved in auditory sensing might develop, as well as how these processes can be applied to develop human inner ear cells. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thanks to Rick Karneski for contributing to our news and calendar section and to Renee Rao for editing assistance. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. Thank you.